scripture reading. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. The Word of God. That passage reminds us that uh, Valentine's Day is coming sometime this month. <laughs> so make sure you don't forget. Lowe's Hardware has some nice deals on furnace filters and carbon fiber socket sets. But to honor Valentine's Day, we're going to look at a passage that describes perhaps the most beautiful love story in the Bible, as we resume our study of the life of Jacob. Father, we thank you for your word. It is just so fascinating. It's just so interesting how, in spite of all the setbacks and problems and roadblocks, you and your sovereignty continued to make your will come about. And Lord, we think of our world today, we think of the fear that is spreading because of this virus. We look at the back of the bulletin, which talks about the repression that is increasing in China, where President Xi is trying to replace Jesus as the focal point of the church, and how the Christians in the Wuhan province are endeavoring to spread hope and peace in the midst of that disaster handing out uh, face masks and sharing the gospel. We just pray that you would encourage them and give them many opportunities to counteract what the government's trying to do, that there could be revivals breaking out in China that would be a rebuke to the godlessness of that government. You are sovereign, Lord. You can do it. We don't want to just look at this virus and fear. We just want to also discern how... You can assert yourself and uh, bring about your will even in the midst of this tragedy. So Lord, thank you for your word this morning and just help us to understand what you want to say to each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to just to recap, in our previous three episodes, we have seen Jacob at his best as a man who desired more, more of God. He wasn't content with being a spectator or second string. Jacob hungered and thirsted for a significant role in thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So he had to secure the birthright and the blessing. But in doing so, we've also seen Jacob at his worst. 
because he decided God needed some human intervention to get his will done. All it took was a, just a little bit of tweaking, some cheating, some lying, a bit of deception. The only problem was that uh, it's not enough to do God's will. We also have to do it his way. Because if we try to do God's will our way, there could be some serious consequences. And Jacob's deception made it far too dangerous for him to stay at home. He had to get out there before his brother exacted revenge. And it must have been very traumatic because this blessing that Jacob had now secured was rooted in the land that God gave to Abraham. But now he had to leave that land, not to mention his sweet, loving mother who is his emotional support system. So Jacob must have experienced some profound withdrawal symptoms as he started that 550-mile journey up north to Haran. And he wasn't traveling light. The accusation of his guilty conscience was a heavy burden until he began to wonder if maybe God had forsaken him. But on his first night in exile, Jacob had a dream of a stairway spreading into eternity, crowded with the hosts of heaven. And then God actually spoke to him and reaffirmed the blessing. Genesis 28:15. God says, I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. So in spite of his sin, God had not forsaken Jacob. In spite of his embezzlement, the kingdom of God was not bankrupt. It was still in business. So we come to chapter 29, and it says, Then Jacob continued on his journey, and came to the land of the eastern peoples. After about a month of traveling, he finally reached his destination. Verse 2 says, There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone over to its place over the mouth of the well. Now these shepherds were not sort of the mild, picturesque shepherds that we see on Christmas cards. In his commentary, John Phillips says they're more like, they were fierce-looking men with daggers in their belts. Probably more like one of the gangs that you find in the hood. Verse 4, Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter Rachel with a sheep. There were two reasons for Jacob's evacuation. One was to escape the vengeance of his hairy brother Esau. The other was to find a wife among the daughters of his uncle Laban. His mother, Rebekah, had insisted on this because she didn't want her favorite son marrying one of the pagan women that lived in that region. Verse 7, Look, he said, the sun is still high. Is it not time for the flocks to be gathered? Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. 
We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. We need a few more men to move that large stone. While they were talking, verse 9, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, he was transfixed. It was as if the sun rose in her eyes. This was a sight even more impressive than that stairway to heaven, for here was the most beautiful angel of all. Oh, what a blessing! This is what God must be talking about. The promise was becoming a reality. And this was love at first sight. And I can prove it because verse 10 says, When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Now normally it would take probably a half dozen muscle-bound men to remove a stone that large. Or one love-stricken bachelor. Because we know first love releases enormous amounts of adrenaline and energy. It increases cellular tempo, muscle efficiency, oxygenation. There's all this testosterone. And it motivates the most ambitious exploits. Songwriters have expressed this bravado. Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me away from you. This was a great opportunity to show off. So Jacob showed Rachel his superpowers. He rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Verse 11, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. For my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I am a smooth man. And he was smooth in more ways than one. I mean, this is the kind of romantic rendezvous that could inspire you to write poetry. Like, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. No, six. It's definitely six. Shall I compare you to a summer's day? July 3rd. August 24th. Yes, indeed. This was the stuff of poetry. And at times like this, it helps to be an English major. But if you've got an engineering degree, I'm sorry, I can't help you with this stuff. (laughs) Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud, tears of joy. This is exactly what God's blessing looks like. Oh, God is good all the time. It's great to have God on your side. Verse 12 says he had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. Well, Rachel was intoxicated with infatuation. He kissed me. I can't believe he kissed me. 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his Sister Sonny hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. 
And there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. After 550 miles, after a month on the road, to receive this warm welcome, what a wonderful family. Way better than that bunch I left back there in Beersheba. I should have left them months ago. After Jacob stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Wow, what a righteous dude. Well, do you have any birthrights you're not using? <laughs> Verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. You see, Princess Leah didn't, just, just didn't have it. There was no sparkle in her eyes. She was a good woman, honest, hardworking, dependable. Someday she'll make a good mother. But for Jacob, you know, there was just no, no effervescence. Not someone who'd have you singing in the rain. No, Leah would make a fine sister-in-law. Jacob's heart was locked on Rachel. He would not settle for anything less. Now, of course, I know they were cousins, right? So why, why would they get married? Well, when paradise was lost, the effects of the fall were twofold. Some were immediate, and others were gradual. So that as time went on, lifespan slowly began to decrease. Different languages evolved. And DNA deteriorated. And so 4,000 years ago, it's still possible to marry cousins without producing children with birth defects. And quite frankly, there wasn't that much to choose from. Options were very limited. Jacob was in love with Rachel. How about your daughter, Rachel? Tell you what, I'll make you a nice bowl of lentil soup. It's good for your soul. Make it two bowls. Jacob was in love with Rachel. You know, they say that love changes everything. Well, here's the proof. Verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. What? Seven years? Jacob is willing to work for something? No shortcuts, no scheming, no swindling, no tricks, no cheating? Jacob offers to do honest labor for seven years. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is a changed man. Verse 19, Laban said, It is better to give her to you than to some other man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Wow. That's the power of love. It transforms even the time-space continuum. 
Seven years seemed like a few days because of his love. And this was love. It was not lust. Because lust is addictive, it's compelling, and it's very impatient. Lust can't wait. That's how you can identify this counterfeit. If the guy can't wait, it's lust. Because true love waits. 1 Corinthians 13.4, love is patient. When you truly love someone, you're willing to wait. In fact, you can actually measure your love for God by how long you will wait before you get discouraged and cynical. When you're really in love, you lose track of time. And those seven years were the happiest years of Jacob's entire life. And the best was yet to come. And notice too that Jacob and Rachel maintained their purity for seven years, waiting until their wedding day. They were in mint condition. And their virtue is a rebuke to all these couples who just can't wait and have to engage in premarital sex. That's lust, not love. That's why so many of those relationships will fail. Verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. And that must have been quite a celebration. Weddings are just wonderful, aren't they? They're so romantic, so emotional. But there's so much going on in a wedding that you, you have to pay attention. Any single guys here? Okay. Listen, guys, when you fall in love and you get engaged and you plan your wedding, you're going to think it's all about the two of you. Well, not exactly. A wedding is all about her. She is the center of attention. Because as the ceremony begins, the groomsmen enter in their penguin outfits, and they all look the same. No one is really impressed. Everyone's looking at their watches because they're waiting for the main event, waiting until the organ plays the majestic notes of a grand entrance. And that's when everyone stands. Because there she is, the bride in all her splendor. And you can tell, you can tell she spent at least three hours at the hairdresser. And that was just for the estimate. And everyone smiles as her presence dominates the sanctuary. It's all about the bride. No one can replace her. The groom is barely necessary. You could fire him, banish him from your kingdom. As Seinfeld says, the groomsmen would just take one step to the left and the ceremony could continue. It's all about the bride. And it certainly was for Jacob. He worked seven years to earn this moment. What a blessing. He was just delirious with joy. So much so that he didn't even notice what was actually happening. It's getting dark. Everyone's celebrating. There's wine. 
People are singing, bringing more wine. Everyone's laughing. Did I mention the wine? And there's all these veils. You just sort of make assumptions. You go with the flow. Verse 23. But when evening came, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. And Jacob lay with her. This time, the bridesmaids took one step to the right. Jacob did not see this coming. He had no idea. So guys, make sure you pay attention. Take a close look at who's behind that veil. You know, sometimes they have this nice, beautiful, flowing, long hair, and they stack it kind of on top, and, and you, you, know, have, you barely recognize them. Make sure you make a positive ID. Which brings us, which brings us to the most traumatic verse in the Bible. Verse 25. When morning came, there was Leah. What? Are you kidding me? No. This is not, this can't be happening. What a rude awakening. Not that there's anything wrong with Leah, but this was not exactly as advertised. Or maybe, maybe this is what Rachel looks like in the morning without her makeup. Where's her mascara? Oh, when morning came, there was Leah. You know, if God's mercies are new every morning, how could this happen? Did God take a day off? I thought you were on my side. When morning came, there was Leah. Has this ever happened to any of you? Of course not. I'll tell you, no matter how disappointing your life has been, you can take solace in the fact that you've never had it this bad. This has to be the worst morning ever. Jacob's dream dissolved into a nightmare. What happened to the blessing? When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you've done to me? I served for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? I can't believe this. We had a deal. I worked seven years to earn your best, and you give me the consolation prize? I've been betrayed. How could you? Oh, I forgot to tell you. We, we have a custom. Verse 26, Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. So I'm sure you appreciate my position as a father, so I'll tell you what I'll do. Verse 27, finish out the daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. What could he do? Jacob did so. He finished out the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And it says, <clears throat> he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Wow. This is not what Jacob had expected at all. And 
the question is, why didn't God warn him? God is good all the time? Really? This is not good? So now what? Well, obviously, there's going to be a lot of turbulence in this family for years to come. You've got two wives. One is loved less. Just think, the other woman is living in your home. This was a disaster. Polygamy just, just doesn't work. It's not biblical. No man can serve two masters. <laughs> hey, you know, single guys, marriage doesn't necessarily solve all of life's problems. If you have a good marriage, a healthy marriage, there's nothing more wonderful in all the world. But half of the marriages fail because they can get infected with all kinds of diseases and difficulties. And staying single sometimes is, is much better. Do you know that most of the main characters in the New Testament were single? Paul mentions the importance of that. So, I guess God's plan to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham has hit a dead end. Obviously, it's not going to work through Jacob. We'll have to get back to Esau and try again. Except for one thing. God had made a promise to Jacob. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God had made a promise to Jacob. And that promise was still in effect. And it reminds us of the promise that God made to us. For example, in Philippians 1.6, it says, Be confident of, uh, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God has promised you that the work that he commenced in your life, he will continue until it's complete. But what if something really goes wrong? What if I mess it up? Or what if somebody else messes it up for me? People do terrible things to each other. What if something goes wrong? Well, something always goes wrong. It's guaranteed. Jesus said in John 16, In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will be deeply disappointed. You will experience injustice. Your dreams will be shattered. Your heart will break. You will be betrayed. In this world, you will have trouble. You know, I've noticed that uh, all my troubles are localized in this world. I have no problems on Mars. The rings of Saturn don't intimidate me. I don't ever lose sleep worrying about Pluto. All my troubles are in this world. And you know what it says here? Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Everything that happens in this world, Jesus has already overcome. Even death. Even death has been overcome. God's promise does not change. And whatever happens to you in this world, 
it doesn't impair his ability to bless you. For we are confident that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now sure, it would have been much easier if Jacob had not deceived his father. Much less complicated if Jacob only had one wife. But, you know, then there wouldn't be all these consequences. So why didn't God warn Jacob? Because even in this mess, even this deception, even in this sin, God found an opportunity to overcome evil with good and to transform the curse into a blessing. And to see him do that is one of the most remarkable things in Scripture. We can see it so clearly when we zoom out and look at the big picture, like the next 2,000 years, which brings us to Leah. While Jacob was a victim of a diabolic deception, Leah was also victimized. In fact, her situation was far worse. We feel sorry for Jacob, but I feel far more sorry for Leah. Her life was more messed up than Jacob's. As a pawn in this bait-and-switch scam of marital, marital musical chairs, Leah is now married to a husband who doesn't love her, who didn't even want her. At least Jacob got to marry Rachel. He got what he wanted. But Leah is the unwelcome outsider in her own marriage. What kind of a life would she have to look forward to? No blessing for you. Next, poor Leah. Until God began to bless her. You see, Rachel had trouble conceiving children. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah, the unexpected bride, the unloved wife, would bear six healthy sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And children are a blessing from the Lord. And the descendants of those sons would become six of the tribes of Israel. And two of them would become especially significant. Members of the tribe of Levi became the priests. They were the ones set apart to serve God in the tabernacle and in the temple. Priests like Aaron and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Those were the descendants of Leah. And more importantly, members of the tribe of Judah would become the kings of Israel, like David and Solomon and Hezekiah. They were the descendants of Leah. And of course, in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born in the tribe of Judah. Without Leah, this would not have been possible. So Leah had one of the most important roles to play in God's kingdom. She was established in the very heart of God's purpose for mankind. Leah had a major role in spreading the blessing of God, the blessing that God gave to Abraham, spreading that to the rest of the world. Which is great for the long term. But what about the short term? Was Leah condemned to live a life of misery and rejection? Would she find any relief for her broken heart? Well, there's good news even for her. 
Because Leah found love in this dysfunctional marriage. Not through her husband, but through God. Through the God who loved her and blessed her. Verse 32 says, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She hoped that her circumstances would change. It says in verse 33, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too, so she named him Simeon. Leah hoped that somehow her circumstances would change. Verse 34, again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons, so she... So he was named Levi. Notice how often she mentions God. Leah seems to have been the the first one in Laban's family to acknowledge God in any significant way. And while the first three sons gave her hope that her husband would, would eventually love her, while she kept waiting for her circumstances to change, they didn't. But Leah had a major breakthrough. Verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time, I will praise the Lord. And she named him Judah. Ultimately, Leah found her fulfillment and blessing in God. In spite of her broken heart, in spite of her disappointment, she was able to say, This time, I will praise the Lord. Which means that she was an overcomer. Not a victim of absolutely terrible circumstances. She was victorious. She found that the joy of the Lord was her strength. This time, I will praise the Lord. What a powerful testimony from a woman who had every right to feel sorry for herself to be bitter and angry with what happened in her life. What, a, what an example, what a blessing. So, when something goes wrong in your life, or when everything goes wrong, you can get discouraged, you can get bitter, or you can also do what Leah did. This time, I will praise the Lord. Father, we thank you that Leah becomes an amazing example to us of someone who lived with terrible circumstances. Someone who uh, was in a situation that would make a person despair of life and yet you brought her gradually to the place where Leah was able to find her fulfillment in you and she could praise you in spite of what had happened to her Lord we want to be more like that we get so overwhelmed by the bad things that happen but we can also decide this time
This time I will not give in to anxiety. I will not give in to fear. This time I will praise the Lord. You are truly are worthy of praise because you are faithful. You will keep your promises to us. You are worthy of our praise. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song that focuses on the faithfulness of the God who keeps his promises to us.